This week we're getting our teeth into the subject of sugar. Experts say it's fueling an obesity epidemic. David Cameron won't back a sugar tax, but would one work anyway? And is sugar really to blame? Plus, in the news, pigeons that can detect cancer, why half of the specimens in museums and other collections may be mislabeled, and how science journals are getting hacked. I'm Kat Arney. And I'm Chris Smith, and we are The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. So far, scientists have logged more than 1,900 planets orbiting other stars outside our solar system. But no one has yet spotted any that are still in the process of forming. Until now, that is, because researchers in the US have finally spotted just such a planet. It's in orbit around a young, two-million-year-old star, which is 450 light-years away from Earth, quite similar to our own sun, and catchily called LKCA15. Planetary scientist David Rothery, who wasn't involved in the study, explained the significance of this discovery to Connie Orbach. What's exciting is we're seeing a planetary system in the act of a formation There are three planets orbiting this star. Uh, The nearest one's about 10 times Earth's distance away from the star, so that's twice Jupiter's distance away from our sun. And the furthest one is about 20, 25 astronomical units, so that's a little bit less than Neptune's distance from our, our sun. So three giant planets, and the innermost one has still got gas falling into it, which is has been measured at this very high temperature of 10,000 degrees, but it's losing potential energy as it falls into the planet's gravity well, and it gets, it gets really hot. So we're seeing giant planets forming. How does a planet form in the first place? What happens is as a star forms, it forms within a cloud of gas and dust, which contracts gravitationally, and as it contracts to conserve angular momentum, it must start spinning faster, so the gas and dust gets shaped into a disk rather than a three-dimensional cloud. And within this disk, you get concentrations of material which collapse onto each other to form uh, planets. Now, the temperature is changing all the time this is going on, so you get the, the materials that can condense at high temperatures forming first, that's the metals and the rock, and later on you get ices forming, and then with a body that's iron and rock surrounded by ice. That's got enough gravity to start sucking the gas out of a cloud as well. And probably we're seeing that stage occurring around LKCA15. You've got the kernel of a giant planet, which is now scavenging all the gas that it can. And it's the infall of the gas which is shining so brightly and enabling the process to be imaged. Why hasn't this been seen before? Well, you need very sophisticated instrumentation to see this. The disk of gas and dust was seen around this star 15 years ago. The innermost planet, LKCA15b, was imaged five years ago. Now they're using adaptive optics on the large binocular telescope and infrared filters to isolate different wavelengths of of light that are being emitted as the gas falls inwards and accretes onto the planet. So it's a combination of big telescopes, very high resolution, because you've got big lenses and adaptive optics to sharpen the focus, and the right kind of spectral data to show the glow of the gas. Oh, wow. So this is a really good example then of 
why we're wanting to get bigger and bigger telescopes and more and more technology. How you know they may cost a lot, but they're showing us so much more. Yes, I've seen quotes suggesting that what we're seeing here is better than the Hubble Space Telescope could ever achieve, for example. It's on a mountain in Arizona. It's above a lot of the Earth's atmosphere, which helps. It's got adaptive optics to increase the sharpness because the atmosphere is shimmering all the time, even from a cold mountain top in Arizona. You need to correct for the atmospheric effects. And they're doing that very successfully now. What can we learn from this sort of planetary formation? I think we're seeing an evolution in knowledge here. This isn't going to revolutionise anybody's ideas, but we're able to demonstrate how early in the life of a star uh, planets form and maybe they'll get some handle on the rate at which planets grow because actually we don't really know that. Some people suggest you can go from gas and dust to full-size planets in a million years. Some people say tens or hundreds of million years. And it'd be good to get a rate of processes. That's what I'm looking forward to see from this. But of course, it's only one example, and it may not be typical of all planetary systems, but at least it's a start. Quite right. The Open University's David Rothery explaining the new discovery made by US astronomers Stephanie Salem and Catherine Follett. Those results were published in the journal Nature this week. Now, meanwhile, back here on Earth, a number of high-profile groups and corporations have been hacked recently. But the world of science isn't immune either. Journalist John Bohannon, who works for Science magazine, has found that fraudsters are now cyber-stealing the internet domain names of research journals and then setting up fake websites bearing a close resemblance to the real thing, which they're then using to extract money from well-meaning researchers. He told me how it works. When you, a normal person, go on the internet and uh, try and read an article, what happens is you type in, for example, nature.com into your browser. A request gets sent on the internet to a bunch of computers called domain name servers. And they do one simple job. They take that name, in this case nature.com, and they look up a string of numbers called the IP address. And once they find it, then they send your request to another computer, which is actually controlled by Nature, the journal. Every server on the internet has its own string of numbers. It's like a, an address, like a phone book. Once your request arrives at the server, it says, oh, hey, someone wants to read this article. It parses your request, and it sends you the correct web page, and that's what you see. And all that happens in the blink of an eye, and it usually works just fine. So here's the catch. Uh, if you forget to pay the bill for the registration of your domain, it happens about once a year, it's only about 10 quid, then there's a narrow window of opportunity where a criminal can slip in as long as they've been tracking you and, and they know that this little opportunity exists. They can actually snatch that domain right out from under you by buying it. And when you say domain, that, that is the web address of the journal that you think you're going to to get the paper that you want to read. And in fact, someone has bought that from under the person who really legitimately owns it and, and hijacked it. Yeah, exactly. And there's no way you could know um, because you just type in nature.com into your browser and it, it's going to show you something. And you have no idea that what might have happened is it went to some criminal's computer server and what they've done is they've made a clone of the Nature website. Usually it's pretty harmless because people just want to read articles and it's no big deal. But if it's a scientist, for example, visiting an open access journal and wanting to publish there, they're going to give credit card information. They're going to send real money. They might give away their password to the real website. Is there any evidence that 
criminals are exploiting the system in this way. They're, they're saying to scientists, right, send money because we're going to publish your paper and this is what it costs, so you have to pay. So this tip came in just this summer that this might be happening, and science put me on the case. And I looked uh, systematically across 12,000 journals, and I found 24 whose uh, web domains have been snatched. And of those, two of them have clone journals. So I know of two cases right now where hijackers have opened up for business, and they're actually making money. Here's what I find truly insane. In one case, (laughs) there's a journal completely fake. They snatch the domain and hijack the journal, and they've opened for business. And for 150 US dollars, you can get your research published in this journal, and it actually does appear online. There are like dozens of articles from scientists all over the world on all kinds of topics that are now published there. And so you might ask yourself, well, why bother? The sad thing is that it's beneficial for both parties. So the hijackers are getting easy money. They don't actually have to run a real journal. If you're running a real journal, you have to you have to do what's called peer review, which means you need to chase down experts uh, on this topic, get them to really read and, and criticize the article, find out if it's really up to snuff. They, they don't have to do any of that. But it's also beneficial for these scientists because now they've got a publication to their name in a journal, which in this case is indexed by Thomson Reuters uh, through their big database called the Web of Science. It's really prestigious. And so, you know, it could very well be that everyone's benefiting except society, of course. Surely the journals that are being hijacked have got something to say about this. They must know. Yeah, and they're very troubled about it, but it's so hard legally to... uh, Uh, address this problem because the hijackers could be anywhere in the world and the companies that do the domain registration they're also all over the world and they don't really have much leverage Um, you could launch a a fraud case for example maybe in the country uh, where the the hijackers uh, registered the domain but they could just slip away long before that really gathered steam and you'd be out a lot of money most journals are doing nothing and the ones i talk to are just planning on sort of quietly switching to a new domain. What would you like to see done about this, John, or what can we do about it? Well, in general, journals need to clean up their act uh, when it comes to websites. They're doing a pretty sloppy job. And for the public, the general take-home is if you visit a website, you might not necessarily be seeing what you think you're seeing. Someone else could be actually controlling that website. Sobering stuff, isn't it? That was John Bohannon. And, and John also told me, for the purposes of researching that story, he actually hijacked a journal himself to see how easy it was. He says he became the proud purveyor of the Croatian Journal of Contemporary Art. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he adorned its new website with a video of Rick Astley. That's very contemporary, John. If you just look at body size and cancer, you might expect larger organisms to get more cancer, right? Because they have more cells. But that isn't the case. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're unravelling Pito's paradox. Animals like elephants have many more cells than humans and they live longer, yet they hardly ever get cancer. But why? Plus, revolutions in genetics and a magical gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Katani, and with Chris Smith. Coming up, how pigeons are diagnosing cancer, and we'll be exploring the truth behind sugar. How does it affect your health? Before that, it's science myth conception time. And this week, Kat, you've been reflecting on the claim that glass is liquid. 
If you're lucky enough to take a tour around one of the many grand medieval cathedrals of Europe, take a careful look at the windows. You'll notice that some of the panes of ancient glass are thicker at the bottom than they are at the top, looking for all the world like the glass is very slowly melting downwards in the frame. Tour guides and teachers alike will explain that the reason this happens is because glass is actually a liquid rather than a solid, although a very slow-moving one. On the surface, this explanation makes a lot of sense. Many materials can exist in different states. Think of water, which is solid below zero degrees Celsius, liquid up to 100 degrees, and then becomes a gas as things heat up further. Glass is mostly made of silica, silicon dioxide as chemists call it, or sand, as most of us know it. Heated up with certain other chemicals to an impressive 1700 degrees, it becomes molten liquid glass. From this state, it can be poured into moulds to set, which is how bottles and glasses are made, or floated on top of vats of molten tin to make perfectly flat glass panes. And when molten glass is cooled down slightly, it can be carefully manipulated, like superheated plasticine. You've probably seen footage of traditional glass blowers at work, puffing down long tubes and twisting the hot, toffee-like material into all kinds of beautiful and useful shapes. Based on this, it seems reasonable to think that the stuff inside our window frames may not be as solid as it seems. Indeed, when scientists have looked closely at the organisation of silica molecules within glass, they look jumbled and disordered, similar to molecules in a liquid like water, rather than the ordered crystalline structures seen in other solids like metals. This irregular organisation is what's known as an amorphous solid, which is seen in other liquids that cool very fast into solids, like certain types of ice that form when hot water is cooled down very fast. You can almost think of it like a, a solid liquid. So is the glass in those medieval windows actually on the move? Well, a research paper published in April 2013 by researchers in Texas came pretty close to shattering that myth. By studying a piece of 20 million year old amber, which is also a form of glass, and subjecting it to changes in temperature, they found that the molecules inside it didn't reorganise themselves in the kind of way that might be expected if it had any sort of liquid properties. Then, at the beginning of 2015, a team led by scientists at the University of Bristol took a closer look at glass using computer simulations, calculating all the different ways in which the molecules in glass might be interacting with, it, with each other and seeing which outcome best reflects reality. They found that over time, molecules of silica in the glass settle down with their neighbours, forming more organised local structures over thousands and millions of years. It's not the same as saying the disorganised structure is a liquid, only that the organisation of the molecules in glass seems to get more regular over a very long time. This still leaves the question of why the bottoms of those medieval windows are thicker than the tops. But there's no mystery here either. It's easily explained by the way they're made. Back in the old days, glassblowers would spin a blob of molten glass into a disc and cut it into panes. This process meant that some edges could end up thicker than the others, and when the fitters put them into the frames, they tended to pop them in heavy side down for stability and safety's sake. So there you have it. Glass is a solid although it's a disorganised one, which is lucky because the only liquid I want in my glass is wine. And mine's a Merlot, please, Cat. Meanwhile, if you have got a myth or a bit of suspicious science that you would like us to look into on your behalf, then send in your thoughts to us. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist or you can find us on Facebook. Now, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. But are we actually sure 
it's a rose at all. According to new research, around 50% of species may be sitting under the wrong names in museums and other collections. Georgia Mills has the story. Here is a riddle for you. What do Beyonce, David Attenborough and Darth Vader have in common? Stumped? Well, they all have had one of the greatest biological honours. They've had species named after them. Every single specimen on Earth known to science has been given a name, from us, the Homo sapiens, to the bumblebee, Bombus supremus. But news broke this week from a study published in Current Biology that up to half the world's specimens might be sitting under the wrong name. The group re-examined all the species from a group of plants, the gingers, and found that most of them had been given the wrong name at some point throughout history, and many still had. I spoke to lead researcher Zoe Goodwin to find out why this is. The main reason is just because there's a huge volume of specimens and tons of new species coming in and... It's a very complex set of things you're looking at. In order to make sense of it, you have to basically become an expert in that group. So it's a lack of expertise. It's too many specimens coming in. And to an extent, it's you know, the people who originally did describe these species, you know, they were describing it based upon one or two specimens. So their knowledge of the species was very different to what we, we know now. There's natural degeneracy in the system because people get old and they have to retire or they just have to move on to, on to other things. So there's a lot of groups where nobody's working on them. Nobody's been working on them for maybe 40 or 50 years. Why is it that we don't have enough experts at the moment, do you think? Part of the reason is that the current academic research system doesn't benefit a discipline such as taxonomy. So taxonomy doesn't have a high impact factor, uh, which is one of the, the ways we judge the importance of research that's been published. And it's not sexy. It doesn't bring huge amounts of funding in. And that's another way we're judged on our work. So although it's fundamental to all of science that we understand which species we're talking about, the current system doesn't benefit taxonomy, the study and classification of plants and animals. Why would you say this is a problem that we don't have maybe the correct label on every single specimen in a museum? Is it, does it really matter? This underpins the whole of biology. You can't study organisms if you don't know which organisms you're studying. And more fundamental things in life. If I, we, we were walking in a tropical forest um, and I handed you a fruit, but I wasn't sure what it was, but I thought it was probably edible, you would probably say, I don't think I'm going to eat that uh, because you're not convinced. OK, you've convinced me it's a big deal. What can we do about this then? Digitisation and DNA work it has its place as a helpful tool. But fundamentally, we need people who can just sit there and look at these specimens, go out into the field, collect them, look at the plants in the wild, really understand the species and communicate that knowledge to other people. Sounds to me like there's just too many species. Yeah, if only the world wasn't so biodiverse. No, it's... um. <laughs> Sounds like we're solving that problem yeah. ourselves. We're doing a good job on that one. Having an expert on a group of animals or plants is clearly very important if you want to get the names right. I went to meet one of these experts, Dr Henry Disney from the University of Cambridge, who is the world authority on a tiny insect called the scuttlefly. We're standing in your office right now and there's um, cabinets full of hundreds and hundreds of trays with presumably specimens on them. This, right. Are these species uh, you've named? Uh, I mean, a lot of them are ones I've named, but that is a collection of scuttleflies of the world. There are about 1,500 species there. Uh, I mean, that's the most important collection of slide-mounted scuttleflies in the world. So there is a dissected oh, wow. scuttlefly. Dissected. And, and that's a reasonable-sized one because that's about two to three millimetres long. Just looking at the slide, these animals are absolutely tiny and you have to tell these things apart. They all just look like full stops to me. I prepare slide mounts 
of them and then put them under the microscope and I take them through the world literature uh, until I eventually have ruled it out. And then once I prove that it's undescribed, well, then I set about giving a formal description. Taking the anatomy information, the genetics information, and putting it all together, and you decide you have got a new species, how do you go about naming it? They have to be in Roman script. So I can pull out a Chinese monograph, and immediately you can pick out all the scientific names, because they're in Roman script, but everything else is in Chinese script. And then they have to conform with the rules of Latin grammar. Now, I've named them after people. I mean, I took part in the Project Wallace expedition to Sulawesi in 1985, where we had scientists coming and going all year. We had an Army, Navy, Air Force, Gurkha support team. So I named a fly after each one of them as a thank you. And uh, uh, then I've named them after habits of the thing after a common thing is after the place so most species are named after a place their habits or named for someone but some scientists seem to have a little bit of fun naming their species a quick google revealed a fly called here's looking at you a beetle called agrocadabra and my personal favorite a spider called apopolis now one for the movie lovers there's some wonderful names. There's a series of marine isopods where the anagrams of the name Caroline because Queen Caroline, there was a certain amount of scandal around her at the time. And then my late colleague, he used to work on the entomology abstracts for the flies and had a colleague who did the abstracts for beetles. But she was a fundamentalist and she refused to abstract a paper on a beetle called Beelzebub, Beelzebubai. <laughs> That was someone having a joke. <laughs> Are you allowed to name species after yourself? You, you mentioned no, that, you'd that, named... That is considered unethical after yourself. When I was trapping crabs in uh, African uh, basket traps, we also used to catch fish and snakes and things. But then a group of fish people came out and made them guests of the laboratory. And so I said, well, you better look at some of the fish that we're eating. And sure enough, a couple of them are new to science, including the staple diet of one village. So they named the one with nasty poisonous spines after me. (laughs) (laughs) And the the, the pretty one they named after an American who took a pretty picture of it. (laughs) Henry Disney and before him, Zoe Goodwin. They were speaking with Georgia Mills. My favourite species name, the Hoff Crab, named after David Hasselhoff, the Baywatch swimmer slash actor. Why did they name it that? Well, it has a very, very hairy underside, apparently. (laughs) Nice. Well, maybe one day you'll get a uh, a species named after you, Chris. Now, one species we definitely know the name of is the pigeon. And it turns out that these animals aren't as bird-brained as you might think. Research published in the journal PLOS One this week shows that a flock of our feathery friends can tell, almost as well as a pathologist, cancerous or malignant tissue from normal tissue. Richard Levinson made the discovery by showing pictures to the birds of what cancerous and healthy breast tissues look like down a microscope on a slide. But why, you may well ask. I had been listening to the radio and heard that a colleague at UC Davis had just published a paper on the ability of pigeons to demonstrate remarkable visual memory. And for no particularly good reason, I wondered how pigeons would do in my field of pathology imaging. So I called up the uh, investigator at Davis, and he said, wonderful idea, but you really need to talk to the University of Iowa researcher who actually had the pigeons. His name is Ed Wasserman, and he turned out to be my co-author on this work. And so you were seeing whether a pigeon would be able to do what a pathologist does when you look down the microscope and you see a particular 
combination of colours and contrast that you would say, with a pathologist's eye, that's something that's cancer. Can a pigeon do that? Exactly. And and the answer to that is would be counterintuitive if they could do it well, because pathologists are the product of years and years of training. You know, humans don't natively have the ability to walk up to a microscope and uh, make these distinctions between benign and malignant, for example. So it would be surprising if pigeons could. And that's the surprising result. The pigeons were very good at this. Pigeons don't tend to mix with microscopes well, though, do they? So how did you show the microscope slides to a bird? The pigeons were kept uh, at 80% of their comfort level with respect to food, and the only way to get their remaining 20% was to perform well on the tasks that they were given. And they were given a task by being put into a a box with a touch-sensitive screen on one end and a pellet dispenser behind them. And an image would be presented on the screen, and after a a bit of uh, uh, habituation, they were given the opportunity to peck a yellow or blue bar depending on whether they thought the image was cancer or benign. And of course, they didn't understand those terms, but by being rewarded or not, uh, they eventually learned to discriminate these two classes. And what was the, the sensitivity and specificity to take two medical terms? In other words, how good were the pigeons at picking up cancer? The pigeons were shown a series of benign images and malignant images, equal numbers. I think it was 12 and 12 And over the course of the first 10 days or so, they went from chance to being around 80-85% accurate. Uh, But the danger here is that instead of learning what cancer and uh, benign breast lesions look like, uh, they had simply memorized the images uh, by just saying, oh, I remember that, that was in class A. Uh, So what we did then was after they hit 80-85%, we then gave them another 12 and 12 benign and malignant images they had never seen before. And the wonderful and and surprising result was that they did just as well on images they had never seen before. And how does that compare with a trained pathologist? Not all pathology problems are the same. In other words, there are some very easy distinctions to be made, and these were of the easy sort. And so pathologists should have no trouble, and all pathologists uh, after training should get all of these correct. But each individual pigeon might be around 80-85% accurate. If you turn around and say, I'm going to give, show the same image to four pigeons, and then see what the majority says, their accuracy goes up to around 99%. So we call that flock sourcing. Very clever. Now, how do you think that they're doing this? Obviously, pigeons were not uh, driven by evolution to become good diagnosticians. What they're doing on this test must, in, in some sense, rhyme with what they have to do in the wild. And vision is one of their major ways of, of interacting with the world. And important thing that they have to accomplish in the world is to avoid being targeted by predators, some of whom use extremely sophisticated camouflage. And so the pigeon has to be able to basically see through the clutter and detect things that might uh, kill them <laughs> and eat them. And so I think that the... the tasks that they have to do in the wild are very similar in terms of content with what you have to do when you look at pathology images. Now, how do you see this discovery being utilised or translated? Are you seriously contemplating boxes full of pigeons in pathology laboratories to do sort of flock sourcing uh, diagnosis? 
I have to say that the vision of flocks of pigeons making diagnoses is, is certainly has a certain strange appeal to it. But the reality is that this world's uh, very complicated um, interacting forces of training, certification, regulation, uh, financial uh, and legal parameters would really, I think, prevent this from, from happening anytime soon. Uh, nor is it uh, probably practical uh, at the end, because pigeons are very visual, uh, but they have uh, very, very poor verbal skills. And there's a lot more information about images and patients that have to be communicated than just what things look like. Cool. That was Richard Levinson from the University of California, Davis. The Naked Scientists are looking for a new theme tune for 2016, and we're currently accepting demos. If you think you might have the musical metal we're looking for, then go to nakedscientist.com theme for details. We look forward to hearing from you. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Katani. Now we're going to talk about the food that seems to be on everyone's lips, sugar. One person in four in the UK is obese and treating obesity and the knock-on effects on health is costing the NHS £5.1 billion every year. Sugar is thought to be partly to blame. A recent report by the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition advises we should be halving our sugar consumption. But how we do this is proving controversial and we'll come to that later in the programme. First, though, we're going to take a closer look at this report itself. Professor Ian Young from Queen's University Belfast is one of the authors. Ian, when we're talking about sugar, what do we actually mean by the word sugar? Well, sugars are small molecules which fall into the group of monosaccharides or disaccharides. And in particular, in the Sacken report, we have used the term free sugars, which means the sugars which are added to foods or drinks by the manufacturer, plus the sugars which naturally are present in honey and syrups and unsweetened fruit juices. And we don't count the sugars in the cellular structure of foods, so whole fruits and vegetables. Because, for instance, I could argue that a potato is full of carbohydrates, but that's lots of sugar molecules stuck together to make another bigger molecule called starch, which is a very different beast than the glucose sugar molecules that make it up, isn't it? It is. So the um, second report deals with carbohydrates in total, which include the complex carbohydrates like starch, the sugars, as I've described, and also fibre. And we didn't find any... Um, harmful effects of the amount of carbohydrate which was in the diet. So the recommendation is that it should remain at around 50%. But we did find some harmful effects around free sugars. When you say 50%, do you mean 50% of the calories that a person takes in should come from some sort of carbohydrate source? Yes, around 50% of calories should come from carbohydrate source. How much are people eating at the moment? The amount of carbohydrate is appropriate. It's around between 50 and 60%. But in terms of sugars, um, it's running between 12 and 15% of energy from free sugars, which we think is far too much. And so what are you recommending instead? We're recommending that free sugars should be reduced to less than 5% of energy intake. And why are you suggesting that? Well, the harmful effects we found with free sugars were firstly... Um, an increased risk of tooth decay. Secondly, we found that in adults 
when people eat a diet with a high sugars content that they tend to consume more energy overall and that's likely to increase the risk of obesity and for sugars sweetened drinks in particular increased intakes are associated with increased risk of type 2 diabetes in adults. Now, about 20 years ago, the proportion of the population of the average Western country that was obese was about 10%. It's now about 30%. Can we account for why there's been this dramatic difference in the last 20 years? So the dominant theory is that it's due to an imbalance between energy intake and energy utilisation. So people have been eating more calories and certainly the increase in sugars intake is likely to play a part in that. But has that really changed in 20 years? Are people dramatically eating three times different amounts of things now compared with what they did 20 years ago? No, they're eating somewhat more, but in addition to that, there's evidence of reduced energy expenditure. And it's the balance between the two, the energy intake and energy utilisation, which probably leads to the increased risk of obesity. So why do you think that sugar and reduction of sugar is the answer then? Because if it's down to lifestyle factors and activity, why will just cutting out some sugar, halving it from about 10-15% down to about 5% of calorie intake, why will that make a difference? So I think it will make a difference. I don't think anybody would say that it's the answer. If you eat less free sugars, then you're better able to regulate your energy intake. And we believe that if sugars intake reduced from 10% of energy to 5%, that on average people would eat around 100 calories per day less if you were an adult. And that would certainly make a contribution to reducing the incidence of obesity. Ian, is there any evidence that, that people get hooked on sugar? Or is that just a figure of speech? Certainly people like sugar. But the idea that sugar is addictive in the way that, for instance, some drugs of abuse are addictive, I don't think there's any significant evidence to support that. Ian, thank you very much. That's Professor Ian Young. He's from Queen's University, Belfast. As Ian has highlighted, sugar is bad for us on many counts, but its two big effects are on our waistlines and also our teeth. But why does it do this? How is the sweet stuff different from the other foods we eat? To find out, we're going to follow the journey of a chocolate bar. The first place it ends up is in your mouth, coating your gnashes. Jimmy Steele is a dentist from Newcastle University and he joins us now. So what is it, Jimmy, about sugar that is so bad for our teeth? Well, when you take that chocolate bar into your mouth and you start chewing it up and it's delicious, it's not just you that's um, metabolising that chocolate bar that you're eating. Because your mouth, of course, is full of a multitude of different bacteria, different species of bacteria. And and much of these bacteria are actually in plaque on your teeth. So they form that that sort of sticky white material which is really why you brush your teeth. You brush your teeth to get that that plaque off your teeth. But there are parts of your mouth where even if you're brushing really, really well, it's very difficult to get rid of that plaque. For example, where your teeth, where they meet each other, you just can't get your toothbrush down there. And so the, the plaque, the bacteria in the plaque, will take the sugar or some of the sugar and they'll convert it into an acid. 
And at the sites where they do that, the pH drops. And when it hits 5.5, then the tissue of your teeth, which is actually very highly mineralized, in fact, the enamel that covers your teeth is, is, is entirely mineral tissue, it starts to dissolve. And if that happens often enough and frequently enough, then it starts to break down. And that is what causes a cavity. So is this basically... Uh binge eating on sugar or is this continuous eating of sugar? You know, I'm trying to think, would it be better for me if I just like had an entire bag of toffees in one go or just ate loads and loads of toffees all the time? Although neither is a particularly good plan, um, (laughs) the, the, the advice I would give to you is if you really have to eat the same amount, you'd actually probably be slightly better off if you ate it all at once because... This happens over time. So the formation of a cavity actually takes really quite a long time. It's not sort of instantaneous. So what happens is when the sugar goes into your mouth, it goes into the plaque and the pH drops, um, what then happens is that your saliva will adjust that and take it back to a neutral pH over a period of time. Maybe let's say half an hour or an hour, it might come back up to normal. But if every 30 minutes you pop another toffee into your mouth or another square of chocolate or whatever it is you fancy, or maybe a, a cup of tea with a spoonful of sugar in it, if if you do that just repeatedly, then the pH rarely or never gets above 5.5. And so the period of exposure to this um, acidity um, is longer and, and continuous. Now, if you have lots of sugar all at once, you, you know, your pH will really go down. So it's pretty bad to have it, you know, a lot of it. But it's arguably even worse if you spread it out over time and, and, and regularly take your sugar. So you mentioned sort of putting sugar in your tea, uh, my my personal vice, things like toffees and chocolate, but there's also sugar in fruits. I did very healthily have an apple before the show. I mean, is the sugar in fruit different from the sugar that's in a chocolate bar? Well, as far as your mouth is concerned, actually it is, because as you heard earlier on when, when Ian was talking, he was talking about free sugars. And the free sugars that are in uh, your chocolate bar, when it goes into your mouth, are very, very available to the bacteria in the mouth. But the, the, the sugars that are still inside the cells of the apple, now some of that as you chew it might be released, uh, but a lot of that will stay as cellular form and you swallow it. And so that's actually much less damaging because that sugar can't escape unless you sort of mush it all out and let it out. So actually, as far as your teeth are concerned, it's actually free sugars that are particularly damaging. But you mentioned that the microbes in our mouth, they turn the sugar into acid, but there's also acid in fruit. I mean, is that also as damaging for our teeth? Uh, Well, it it is, but it operates in a different way because a little sort of spot of plaque, if you like, on your teeth uh, reduces the pH at that side. The difference with um, acidic drinks, for example, you know, I mean, even very healthy things like orange juice are quite quite acidic. Um, the difference with them is that they um, wash over your whole mouth. So one of the classic bits of advice that we give as dentists is, if you're going to have a, a glass of orange juice, for goodness sake, don't brush your teeth immediately afterwards because they may be temporarily demineralized. Now, they will remineralize very, very quickly just with the saliva in your mouth. But if you brush your teeth just straight away when they're just a little bit soft, then you may take off a little micro layer and that's what happens. So broadly we do hear that we're all eating more sugar, we're eating too much sugar. Has this actually impacted on the nation's teeth? Well, 50 years ago, we were in a, a dental decay epidemic. Um, and that was really going on, I suppose, probably until the 70s and 80s. And since then, we've actually seen a steady reduction in dental decay. 
Probably one of the biggest things that happened was that fluoride went into toothpaste around about the start of the 1970s. But a lot of other things have happened as well. Um, we look after our mouths better. We have less decayed teeth lying around in our mouth. And as they get restored, probably the bugs in our mouths change a little bit. So it's quite a complicated picture, but it has reduced very remarkably. And actually, in fact, Britain's now a very good place from the point of view of uh, low levels of decay when we compare ourselves to equivalent nations around the world. Is sugar such a bad idea? I mean, if, if all our teeth are generally getting better, should we still be concerned and, and tell kids, you know, don't eat so many sweets and all that kind of thing? So what's, what's really happened, actually, is that the prevalence, in other words, the percentage of the population who are affected has reduced quite remarkably. But there are still lots and lots and lots and lots of people affected. So about one in three people um, in adults, and something pretty similar in children, have at least one decayed tooth in their mouth at any given time. So that's still quite a high percentage. And if you take the people who have some decay in their mouth, the amount of decay that they have really has not changed, certainly in the last decade, if you're in that group. So although the size of the group's reduced, the amount of decay within the group is just as bad as it ever was. And about one in seven children from the most recent survey, which was very recently actually published earlier this year, about one in seven children has very bad decay with infections, sepsis, um, or multiple teeth affected. So, so it's still, you know, a pretty severe condition if you've got it. Certainly something to chew over. Thank you very much. That's Professor Jimmy Steele from Newcastle University. Now, once you swallow your chocolate bar, it goes travelling down your oesophagus, that's the food pipe that leads into your stomach, and that's where digestion gets going. But how does that chocolate bar turn from a chocolate bar into a double chin? Well, Dr Giles Yeo is from the Medical Research Council's Metabolic Disease Unit at the University of Cambridge. So, Giles, kick off if you would and tell us, first of all, when, when we eat some sugar, what actually happens first? So what the stomach does is to begin, as you say, kick off the digestion process. So it begins by putting in, you know, gastric acids and all kinds of other really quite nasty stuff to begin breaking down the food. But what then happens is the food then passes from the stomach and into the small intestine. And it's within the small intestine that digestion continues, but where all of the absorption of the foods then occur. So the food has been dismantled into its chemical components. That's correct. So for example, and at that point, it then starts to go into through the wall of the small intestine. It gets distributed around the body in the bloodstream. That's absolutely right. So what you don't absorb is you don't absorb starch. You don't absorb protein like in a big chunk of steak. You don't absorb fat. What you do is you have to break it down. So, for example, for proteins, you'd be breaking it down to amino acids. For fats, you'd be getting down to something like lipids and triglycerides. And for sugar you'd be actually absorbing it as sugar. Right. So how does it compare then? If I, if I eat, say, 500 calories and I eat them as broccoli or Brussels sprouts, some vegetable matter, fruit, whatever, compared with 500 calories of sugar, how does that differ? Because it's the same number of calories. It is the same number of calories if you can actually break it down molecularly. The issue is, however, it takes energy to break calories down. So the problem with sugar is 100 calories of sugar or 500 calories of sugar is 500 calories of sugar, whereas 500 calories of broccoli or celery maybe even is probably, I don't know the number, but it'd be like far less than 500 actual calories. And that is the problem. It's energy availability. Is there also a timing effect in the sense that when I eat something like sugar, 
digestion can begin and end almost instantly because it's all in a form that can be instantly absorbed. Whereas if I've got something that's a more complicated sort of food, so there's therefore a longer time as that process is happening. That's absolutely correct. And does that mean then that I feel less hungry because I've got a full stomach and intestine for longer, so I'm less tempted by other treats while I'm processing the stuff I've already eaten? I think there is evidence for that to to actually be the case, yes. Now, are you very thirsty and hungry, or have you just brought in a whole lot of fruit juice and a pile of apples I, for no reason? <laughs> I am trying to demonstrate one thing, because people... No, look, I'm not a sugar Nazi, um, but... I want to demonstrate something about availability. So here I have, I'm thirsty and I have half a glass of apple juice. What I want to demonstrate. That's right, half a pint of apple juice. What I want to demonstrate is how many apples it went into making that half a pint. So I'm going to pass you the apples over here and then we're going to have a a race. I'm going to drink the apple juice and I'm going to see how long it takes for you to have these, I don't know, eight apples, the whole whole bag. Is that really eight apples? It is is eight apples. So it depends on how large the apples are, I guess. But yes, it is really eight eight apples. Okay, pass them over. I'll get started. I'm going to pass them over. Sorry about the knocking. Hang on. Two. Two. There's another two. Four. Do I have to eat all the apple, including the pips? Because you know the cyanide in apple pips. <laughs> just, just the the non cyanide. We did of calculate the that fifty four apples, I think, is potentially a lethal dose of cyanide. I've got to eat that lot, right? Okay, I've got to start seven seven apples then. Absolutely, Giles. I'm going to start drinking now. Okay, so he's starting drinking his apple juice. Okay, I'll take my first bite. Okay, right. Excuse the eating. While you digest your apple juice and I eat my apple. When the calories come into me mm-hmm. as sugar mm-hmm. or, or anything, sugar's carbohydrate. So why is it the people who have a lot of energy actually end up fat? Sugar is, or glucose anyway, is your base energy unit almost. So in other words, you need to maintain a level of sugar within your blood, a level of glucose within your blood to not feel faint, to, to not be ill. So A, you've got to have enough glucose to keep it at that level. B, what happens is then you need a quick release source as storage, and that's called glycogen. Okay, And that tends to be stored in your liver and your muscle. But only, I would say, 100 to 150 calories worth of glycogen are in you at any one point. Everything else, which is not required at that time, it's broken down and then reassembled as fat. Ah, so you you tend to preferentially store things as fat. Why is that? Because it's capable of storing a lot more energy than than glycogen? In fact, fat is the professional energy storing unit because it's so dense. It's the densest amount of calories you can kind of fit into a given weight. So that's why you store it as fat. Would it be worth then trying to adopt a diet that's completely sugar-free? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. I don't know if it technically would be possible because you'd need fruits and vegetables and those actually have sugars within their cells. Now, can you have uh, foods that are completely lacking in additional sugars? Plausibly, but then it probably wouldn't be very palatable. So the bottom line is that we need to adopt what Ian was suggesting, about 5% of our calories in the form of these extrinsic free sugars. The rest of the carbohydrates, up to 50% of calories in the form like this apple I'm eating, complicated locked away calories, and then the rest from fats and proteins in order to achieve the sort of right balance of nutrients that we need. I think that's probably very wise. I mean, we need to reduce the amount of food we eat, period, but that's probably wise. Thank you, Giles. That's Dr. Giles Yo. He's from the MRC Metabolic Disease Unit at the University of Cambridge. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, it's chris at nakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. So it's clear that we need to cut down how much sugar we eat, as Giles, Ian and Jimmy have all argued. But how do we do it? 
Public Health England say we should tax sugary foodstuffs. David Cameron says we shouldn't. What actual evidence, if any, is there to suggest that this would work? We're joined now by Anthony Laverty. He's a research fellow that specialises in public health. First off, what is this sugar tax that Public Health England are proposing? Public Health England, PHE, they haven't sort of specifically gone through the sort of policy details of this is what our tax would look like, this is what we need specifically. They've said uh, we could have a 10 to 20% tax on sugary foods and they sort of say in bold this could include sugary drinks but they haven't sort of said this is what you need specifically so you know we don't really have the detail of the kind of the policy on the table as such. So sort of an have we thought about this kind of thing? Yeah so they sort of say the available evidence says this would work but they haven't said specifically this is kind of how you should design it and this is what we expect to see. And this is obviously really controversial because uh, the, the idea of taxing something like sugary drinks and foods uh, has seemed to have got people's backs up. What are the key arguments on both sides? The key argument's really about why it would work is it just says you kind of make this simple causal chain that says things will be more expensive, that price will be passed on to the consumer, people will buy fewer of them, there'll be fewer calories, less sugar, and will have this kind of knock-on, nice impact on their health. Everyone's a winner. Everyone's a winner. And so the arguments against it are, well, we don't really know that the prices will be passed on to consumers. You know, maybe the supermarket, say, will just absorb that. Uh, Although the evidence says that that seems unlikely to happen. A lot of it kind of revolves around this sort of free market, free choice this idea. It's an ideological that, thing, isn't there? That, you know, this shouldn't... Yeah, shouldn't yeah. Happen. So people should be able to go out there and, like, you know, buy as much sugar as they like. So has this actually been trialled in any countries? So a few places have tried different things. So Mexico, most famously, so they sort of have this tax on sugary drinks. Um, so Mexico is sort of one peso per litre. So you're talking about quite small amounts, um, which is kind of where, again, there's some uncertainty. So some people say, unless you're going to tax at around about a 20% level on like the sugar in drinks, you're not really going to see a big impact. Uh, and so Berkeley in California, so they have this sort of one cent per ounce of sugar. Again, the... You know, it's early stages for the kind of implementation of the policy. So the evidence there says the prices are passed on to consumers, but we don't really know very specifically, you know, are people buying fewer of them and consuming less calories? And there are things that we heavily tax in the UK that could be considered to be unhealthy vices. I'm thinking, obviously, of sort of booze and cigarettes. Yeah. Does that seem to work? You know, the, a huge proportion of the price of a packet of cigarettes is now tax. Yeah, so uh, so taxing cigarettes sort of definitely works. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find people that disagree with that. Uh, but the other thing is, so certainly on, on tobacco, you know, taxes are the big one that are effective. But over about 20 years, you know, we worked on kind of the affordability of, ta- of tobacco. We worked on the accessibility, so you can buy it in fewer places. And we worked on the kind of acceptability. So, you know, there's these public campaigns about how uh, it's particularly bad for you. And so similarly with sugar, you know, you would see, I would say you would see impacts from the tax, but also, you know, if you want to see some large impacts, you're going to have to consider intervening at other places. Maybe trying to get rid of that wall of chocolate in in service stations. I find that so tempting. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, certain places have said we're going to get rid of that, but um, sort of limited action, I would say, on that so far. Thank you very much. That's Anthony Laverty from Imperial College London. So, Chris, how are you getting on with your sugar test? How are you doing with those apples? I've managed to complete one apple so far. Giles, how are you getting on with your glass of juice? It is finished. It's gone. Wow. So Giles has done a whole half pint of apple juice. That, wasn't, that was just because it's nice, right? Not because not you were forcing it down. That's right. 
Yeah, and so I've managed one apple, which is precisely one-seventh of the number of calories that Giles has consumed. And that, that's the important point here, isn't it, Giles? So we're, we're basically taking in uh, a lot fewer calories if I eat the apple than if you neck down a half a pint of... Correct. Liquid. So sugar in itself is not bad, but how much of it you have, that's the problem. Well, there you go. So turn to the apples rather than the fruit juice in future. Thank you to Giles Yeo for that wonderful demo. And thanks to all our other studio guests this week, Anthony Laverty, Jimmy Steele and Ian Young. And now it's time for Question of the Week with Felicity Bedford. She's been answering Amanda's question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. How do I stop my nose from running? Now, this is one question that I really wanted to know the answer to, as I'm always finding myself far from a tissue with a runny nose. So I asked GP Adam Foreman to help. I guess to start with, we really need to know what causes my runny nose in the first place. The nose acts as a very sensitive organ to control the temperature of air and the particles in the air being inhaled. So on a cold day, more blood will be sent to the lining of the nose to warm the air up, and this produces mucus and hence the runny nose. Likewise, for toxic chemicals or even the chemicals in a hot chilli, the same process will happen the lining of the nose will become injected with blood and the lining will produce more mucus and the runny nose. OK, so there's not much I can do about cold air and toxins. But what happens if I have an allergy, like hay fever? Then the cells in the lining of the nose will produce a histamine reaction which causes swelling of the lining of the nose and the production of more mucus, hence the runny nose. This can be controlled either by avoiding the allergen or any toxic chemicals, but also an allergic reaction can be controlled either with a local medical treatment, a nose spray, damping down the histamine reaction or by taking drugs. Also, you may have a runny nose because you've been crying a lot. The tear ducts in the eyes drain into the nose and hopefully this could be cured quickly with a hug or help from a loved one. By far the most common cause of a runny nose is a virus, otherwise known as the common cold. And this, unfortunately, has no treatment apart from patients and forbearance and a lot of tissues. Thanks, Adam. So, Amanda, if nasal sprays and hugs don't work for you, I guess it's time to go tissue shopping. Next week, we'll be journeying into the cosmos to answer Jess's question. What would happen if I plucked a guitar in space? Well, would it continue playing that note forever? Would radiation change how it sounds? What do you think? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. Or you can even join in the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. That's it for this week. Join us next time to find out what happens when water goes from being a lifesaver to a natural disaster. Can we predict when the next flood is going to be, where... And how can we stop it? The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by Rolls-Royce, the EPSRC and the STFC. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much at home for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.